We are running a little behind, but I promise to get you out before the tropical force winds begin to blow. When Jason was playing um, uh, 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 Martin Luther's um, Mighty Fortress is Our God on the electric guitar, uh, that's the first time I'd heard that, and it reminded me, however, of something that uh, struck me even even more um, starkly than than the, than than Mighty Fortress on electric guitar, and it was. I don't know if I've said if, if I've told you the story. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but when I was in college, I got arrested by blocking an abortion clinic door in uh, Baltimore. Uh, along with 200 other people, and I got thrown into a paddy wagon with um, all Roman Catholics, which was fine. But then they started singing, "A mighty fortress is our God," and uh, Martin Luther was the the first reformer, and that that struck me as odd and glorious all at the same time. Anyway, if you have your Bibles. Open to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading with verse 2 and go through verse 6, but we are going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Beginning with verse 2, Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we uh, see this first part of the Apostle Paul's testimony and how he did all these uh, religious things in order to try and recommend himself uh, before your righteous bar of justice. I pray that we would all recognize along um, with the Apostle Paul that those things amount to nothing. Or as he uses the word he uses, to dung or to rubbish, or as some translations have, garbage. For that is um, what those things amount to when done to try and make ourselves righteous in Your sight. Pour out Your Spirit as Your Word has now been read and as I uh, proclaim it. Uh, I ask You would be with us. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. There was a missionary named John Patton Sorry, Dale. He is. Uh, it was spelled P-A-T-O-N. So, uh, no relation. I don't see the patents here. It may be that they are having a grandchild. Um, I knew that they were going out of town. If that was the case. But anyway, John Patton 
was a missionary. He was a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific Ocean. He ministered during the last half of the 1800s. And once while he was preaching, he was struggling to have the right word in their native language to communicate um, faith and the concept of faith and how to have faith in Jesus Christ and what that meant. But while he was up speaking and grasping for that word, he, he, was, uh, he looked out and he saw a gentleman that had polio and uh, his feet um, were... Uh, he was, he was uh, really not able to stand on his own but he was standing while leaning completely upon a friend. And so he all his weight, um, this man who had polio, he was leaning all his weight upon his friend. And seeing this helped uh, John Patton to, de- to define for the people the true nature of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is leaning completely, leaning heavily, leaning wholly, upon Jesus Christ. When we lean upon Him, we stop working. We stop doing. Faith means uh, faith in Christ means simply leaning our whole, the whole weight of our trust upon Him alone. When we lean upon Him, then we receive His forgiveness. The, the forgiveness that He acquired for us by His death and His resurrection. Uh, His acceptance with God, when we lean upon Him, becomes our acceptance with God. When we lean upon Him, His righteousness becomes our possession. And all we can do is lean upon Him. But then, of course, when we do lean upon Him and rest upon Him, our resting becomes restless because He works faith in us. And we are so eager then to serve Him and obey Him and live for Him. But the Christian life starts and continues by leaning, by resting on Jesus Christ. That is the essence of faith. And it seems so simple. It also seems so wonderful that I think we're justified in asking Why doesn't everyone lean upon Jesus Christ? Why doesn't everyone flee to Him in order that they may rest upon Him alone for salvation? That they may rest upon Him and receive this free gift of eternal life. This free gift of righteousness. This free gift of a relationship with God. Why don't they do it? Rather than resting in Christ, what we find is that many work very hard to try and recommend themselves to God. In fact, whole religions have been built upon this idea of working in order to make oneself righteous before God, to make oneself uh, presentable before God. Even many Christian denominations have fallen prey to this works-oriented approach. It's mind-boggling that this happens. That people choose works and self-effort 
and religious practice instead of Jesus Christ. It turns the what happens is when you rely on this works-oriented salvation, it really makes it a non-salvation. It turns the free salvation we have in Christ upside down. Why are people so eager to reject the utterly free gift of salvation that we have in Christ? I think one of the reasons is people want to have a self-confidence or a sense of confidence. Um, They reason, if I really work hard for God, if I please Him, if um, if I show myself uh, to be sincere in my faith, if 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 I show myself to um, to do all these wonderful things, then surely God will let me into heaven, and I get to have a sense of of confidence about that because I did it. And we see people all around us in our own community in society as a whole and throughout the world as a matter of fact very religious people doing all of their religious activity activities sometimes wearing specifically religious clothes um, uh, sporting interesting hairstyles sometimes sometimes living in poverty in order to show themselves sincere in their faith, in order to recommend themselves to God. They devote their entire lives to to this pursuit of appeasing God. And as I said earlier, even entire cultures, cultures with many more millions of people than the total population of the United States, live like this. Live in this bondage of trying to make themselves good enough or godly enough before to be accepted by God. And what makes this especially tragic is that is their sense of confidence that they so greatly desire is really a false confidence. It reminds me of Matthew seven, twenty one through twenty three. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. They had a sense of confidence. They're calling on Jesus. But their confidence was false because they were relying on themselves rather than simply resting upon Jesus Christ. And we're talking about it in our contemporary day. But it's true. It's been true throughout the ages. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been mankind's strategy throughout the ages. Every generation of every culture, including our own, is shaped in part or sometimes in whole by this desire to be good enough, this desire to be religious enough, this desire to be devoted enough in order that God would let them into heaven. But in the end, all this effort, all this religious activity is for nothing. In fact, it is displeasing to God and He will not accept it. Why won't God accept it? Why will God not accept their attempts to appease Him? 
It doesn't seem right when we think think about it in one sense that they would give up their whole lives to God only to find that their very attempts at appeasing Him are further separating them from God. The problem is, the reason why God will not accept their works-oriented religion, their works-oriented salvation, is that it is always grounded in man and not in God. Our salvation is a free gift. It is free for us, but it was costly for God. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. What did He give His only Son to? To that awful cross. To be stretched out on that cross. To have His hands and His feet pierced with those nails. To wear that crown of thorns. But that wasn't the bad part. As awful, as horrid as that is, the really horrid part is that while He was stretched out on that cross, God the Father was pouring out the wrath that He should have been pouring out on us. The sins that we committed, our Lord Jesus took upon Himself on that cross 2,000 years ago. That's why He said, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Because God the Father was pouring out His wrath. The the book of of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, says says that God the Father struck Him But the blow He received brought us peace because He took our punishment in our place. And so it cost God dearly this salvation that we receive so freely. And God is a holy and just God. His eternal justice demands a punishment for each sin against Him, for every wrongdoing. But Jesus paid the totality of that price. And so none of us, by our religious activity, or by our good works, or by our sincerity, or by our devotion, are able to appease an eternally just God. It is impossible. That is why Jesus came. He came not to make salvation possible. He came to save us by taking that blow in our behalf. In order for us to be able to appear before God, we have to be righteous. We have to be completely righteous. Righteousness is one of those things like perfection or wholeness that loses its meaning entirely if you divide it. Perfection is a whole. You cannot be half perfect. Trying to be half perfect is to be imperfect. Is to be not perfect at all. Righteousness is exactly the same. You are either completely righteous or you are not righteous at all. If you're almost completely righteous, that's unrighteousness. Therefore, all we can do 
in order to enter into a righteous God's presence is lean wholly, completely, utterly on Jesus Christ alone. To try and work your way toward a righteousness that will appease God is futile. In fact, it is a perversion of God's free grace and it is an insult to God's mercy. Why do people then think that they can actually work their, work out their salvation on their own? Why do people think that by simply doing these religious things are able to recommend them to God? The reason why they, they would think that, that they could do this is because they don't really believe that they are that bad. They do not appreciate how desperately sinful the entire human race really is. We look at our other we look at other cultures, we even look at our own culture and we shake our head in disgust and we say, that's bad out there. Why is it bad out there? Because we are bad on the inside. We look at outside ourselves and we, we recognize the badness, the evil. But when we look in the mirror, we say, I look pretty good. And I have a few flaws here or there. But otherwise, I'm pretty good. I can atone for those few flaws by my effort, by my devotion, by my sincerity. Consequently, we believe we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and appease God ourselves. Paul understood the temptation that um, to do this. He understood it because he had lived like this. Um, he says here, verse 4, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. First of all, he's saying, put no confidence in the flesh, verse 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. And he goes on to list these various ways that he, has, that he had confidence in the flesh. Uh, verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. The commentators really love this. Um, because literally in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, it says he was an eighth, he was an eighth dayer. Is literally how it's um, how it's translated. You know, he he wasn't simply circumcised, but he was an eighth dayer. He was circumcised on the day that uh, God said that a child should be circumcised. Even before he could uh, generate any self-effort, his parents were making sure that he was righteous. Not only that, um, he also had a proper lineage. Verse 5, he was born of the people of Israel. He had a Hebrew mother, a Hebrew father. Not only that, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. When the northern ten tribes uh, separated and rebelled, uh, Benjamin stayed with Judah. And they became the what we would now call Jews. And he was a Benjamite. In fact, he was named after the most famous of the Benjamites, Saul, 
before Jesus changed His name. And not only did He have the proper lineage, He also had the proper associations. He was a Pharisee. He was trained under the wisest living Pharisee, uh, Gamaliel. And um, the Pharisees were not another denomination. Rather, they were a, a group of of um, Jews within the Jewish denomination. And they were the separate ones. They lived, they were so holy that they separated themselves even from the Jews to make themselves really holy. They followed the law uh, um, religiously. Um, and, and they had all these laws and they even built laws around each law so that they wouldn't break these laws that were around the law so that they would never break the law itself. And uh, there was a certain pride in that. And then he says his motives were also proper. He was zealous for God's glory. He was so zealous, in fact, that he would drag the Christians off and, and, um, and send them to prison or to be killed. He was so zealous. He thought his motives for God were, were so proper. And then also as to his practice, he says, uh, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This confused me for a number of years. I used to think, how can a man really be blameless? And uh, in reading this passage, the commentator said, well, he obeyed the law and so doing also obeyed the sacrifices uh, for sin. So when he sinned, he, he made the proper sacrifices and in that way he was blameless according to the law. And so in all these ways, Paul says, I, have, I had reasons for confidence. See, what was happening was these Judaizers were coming into to, uh, Philippi and they were saying, you need to be circumcised. You need to live like a Jew. You need Jesus, but you need to also live like a Jew. And Paul was saying, no, all you need is Jesus Christ. And he says, I excelled beyond any of these Judaizers in the conduct of my life before I became a Christian. I excelled. I beat them at their own game. I was blameless regarding the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was an eighth dayer in regard to circumcision. These guys cannot hold a candle to me. But he says, but for, for me I learned it's all nothing. It's garbage. Or as he said in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. He goes to Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and end this fairly quickly. I want to say before I move into the conclusion that if you are here this morning and if you are trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ or if you are trusting in Jesus Christ plus something else, plus your lineage, I was born into a Christian household or, or whatever else. If you are trusting in Jesus plus anything else for your standing before God or for your eternal salvation, 
And what you're saying is Jesus is not enough. Or that Jesus is not necessary. And you cannot be a Christian if you think that Jesus is not enough or that He is unnecessary. So I urge you, flee from anything that you would find self-confidence in. Flee to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. I had some Scripture passages I was going to turn to. I'm only going to turn to the last one. And I would ask that you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. The writer of Hebrews has been warning the the Hebrews against apostasy in chapters 5 and 6. But then he's saying to them, you, even as I give you this warning, you can have a confidence if you place your confidence in the right thing or rather in the right person. That this confidence is sure and certain. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His, of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope uh, set before us. And so what he's saying here is God was so eager for them to understand how faithful He is to His promise and how much confidence they can have in His faithfulness to His promise that God took an oath. Even though it's unnecessary for God to take an oath. God doesn't need to swear an oath to let us know that He's going to be faithful. He is faithful just by His nature. If He was unfaithful, even for a moment, He would cease to be God. He is not only faithful, He also does not lie, will never lie. And so He's setting it up and He's saying, God says He's faithful. Therefore, we who have fled for refuge, verse 18, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What if I'm not going to hold fast? What if I might let go? Where is my confidence? Listen to verse 19. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind this curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, what he's saying, the hope that you have The hope that you hold on to is really not something that you're holding on to. Rather, it is God's grip on you. It is Him holding on to you. And where is that hope anchored? That hope is anchored in the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, where only God can be. Well, Jesus... Remember when He was on that cross, when He said, it is finished. Remember what happened to a curtain in the temple? It was rent from the top down to the bottom to show that no man could do it. Only God could do it from the top to the bottom. Signifying 
that the way into God's presence is open. And not only that, Jesus went in there and He serves as the anchor for our souls. Our confidence is never, ever, ever, ever to be in something we could do. It should never, ever, ever be in the quality of our prayers or the quality of our Bible reading, our Scripture memory. Our confidence is in the anchor in Jesus Christ. He holds us firm. Where is your confidence? I'm going beyond my my little conclusion, but it just it just I suddenly thought back to what my confidence was when I was in high school before I became a Christian. I had a lot of confidence in all those things. A lot of confidence in myself. Now I look at it and go and that that was an anchor in shift in, 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 in sifting sand that wasn't gonna hold. Where is your confidence? Is it in Jesus Christ? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the Apostle Paul put himself out before us and said he had formally confidence in all these these things that really um, were something that he should not have had confidence in. I thank you that when you called him to called him to yourself that he found them to be rubbish. I thank you that we have a sure and certain hope where Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies, even into Your very presence, through the way opened by His blood and His righteousness. And He has taken us with Him in there, and He has anchored us to Your faithfulness by His righteousness and by His blood shed for us. I pray that none would leave here with the confidence other than in Jesus Christ alone. I pray in His name. Amen.